now. Truth of Lies, Episode 1. A knock at the door. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, whatever time it is. Welcome to Truth of Lies. My name is Tony Horn. I'm a ghostwriter and podcaster. I'm in Lancashire, England, in West Bolden, in the northeast of the country, is Julie Phillips. Together, we are going to tell a fascinating story where a series of inaccuracies came to represent a truth that was far from that. We're recording this on the evening of the 13th of September 2023. But to begin to understand our story, we have to go back to the 28th of January 2002 and about 6.30 in the morning, UK time. When I say that date and that time, Julie, without telling the whole story in the first couple of sentences does that send a shudder down you resonate very loudly it's surely a date and a moment that's very difficult to get past i'll not forget that date in a hurry well two two dates the 27th and obviously the 28th yes because julie gets a knock on the door on the 28th uh referring to something that happened the previous day on the 27th in Sierra Leone. Now, what's the background here? Where were you when you received that knock on the door? In bed, asleep with my daughter, Holly, who was eight weeks old. So I hadn't really had much sleep because I'd been up and down all night feeding her. And it was about 6.30 the knock on the door. And geographically, you weren't in the northeast then. Where, where were you? I was in um, Blackpool, Wheaton Barracks. So what happened when there was that knock at the door? It's a moment that is heavily dramatised in, say, Second World War fiction, the dreaded knock at the door. Um I think we think that those days are, are long gone, but here we are over 20 years ago and it's happened. As you replay the movie in your mind, as we discuss it now, just explain the chain of events that followed. Firstly, you're clearly startled to get a knock on the door at half past six in the morning. I heard the knock, like a loud bang on the door and I ignored it. And then another bang and the doorbell ringing. And this went on for maybe, felt longer, but it was probably seconds. And I went down the stairs, but I didn't open the door, look through the spy hall. And I could see the family's officer, who I knew. Well, I recognized his face. And this other man, a padre, I only noticed that because he had the white collar. And I was thinking, oh, what's happened? Not not me, personally. I didn't think anything was wrong. 
but I thought it was somebody else. So I looked again through the spy hole and I was like, so I opened the door and they just both looked, well, they didn't look at me. They had the heads down, bowed. And I just said, what's wrong? And the family's officer said, I need to come in, mate. And I was like, why, what's wrong? Not even thinking. I don't know. I don't know what was going through my mind, but nothing what... I was going to find out, obviously, minutes later. I didn't think that there was anything wrong with me or anybody I knew. or I thought maybe it was something in the street. He just bowed his head. He said, I need to come in, mate. And then I think it went silent. And I think I just saw that, you know, that look on somebody's face when you know what's going to come out the mouth. Just that look before they say it. And I went, is it Michael? And he just lowered his head and said, yeah, mate, I need to come in. And it was just like, I know it's like nearly 22 years ago, but it's like yesterday. I can remember what I was wearing, how my hair was, like everything I can remember as if it was yesterday. And he called you mate? Called me mate, yeah. Hmm. Okay. Can you remember what he said when you said, is it Michael? He went, I need to come in, mate. And I went, no, I went, I, he went, I need to come in. I went, is he okay? And he went, no, mate. He said, I need to come in. And I'd, I'd, I'm sure I said, in fact, I'm 100% positive I said, is he, is he okay? And he just shook his head and I went, he's dead. And I just looked at him and I, I can remember flinging myself back on the stairs, not like literally, but like the stairs was right in front of the door. And I just like flung myself down and like, I didn't cry. I didn't, I think I was just in shock thinking, <laughs> Is this for real? They're knocking on my door at half past six in the morning and they're wanting to come into my house. And then obviously they came in. The padre just laid little cards everywhere. He didn't say anything. He'd left a card in the living room on the unit, one in the kitchen. And I can remember looking at him saying, well, you're too, I swore, you're too effing late. This was to the padre. I just thought, you know, really, like, what, what, what are you going to do? What, how, are you, how are you going to help me? But obviously, I'm not used to stuff like that. And that's, I think that's how they must go about things. The padre obviously comes with the family's officer. For most people who will never find themselves in these situations, I think it's impossible to explain the speeds at which life travels. You heard Julie say that uh, she had a sense that it felt like someone had been knocking at the door for ages, when in fact it probably wasn't that at all. And rising from broken sleep to a knock on the door so early, playing catch-up, 
And then at some point, you know, accelerating into fast forward as the news comes out in sort of stages. And then I guess once the words are spoken, there's, there's absolutely no turning back and time, time stands still. So was their visit short? They stayed for quite a while. And I can't remember whether I went upstairs and got Holly, but they stayed for quite a while. And I, I, I do know that I rang a friend, Sarah, on camp. Her husband was in Sierra Leone with Michael. Michael was his boss. And when something happens, so I learned later, they cut the phone lines whether it's Sierra Leone, Afghan, Iraq, they cut the phone line so people can't get in touch, let people know what's happened before it's come from. Obviously, like they put a lid on the truth and shape their own version of events before anything is leaked outside would be another way of looking at it. Yeah, that, that, that's what they do. Whether it's Iraq, Afghan, if ever there's death... The phone lines are stopped, so there's no communication back to the UK. I rang Sarah. She was heavily pregnant. I think she she thought I was dreaming. And she was like, I said, you need to come up. You need to come up. Michael's got, he's dead. He's dead. He's been killed. And she was like, no. And I was like, no, no, you need, you need to come up now. And I can remember looking out the kitchen window I lit a cigarette up and I went out the back door and I can remember looking out the kitchen window and I seen her running up the street and she thought when she got to the door I was going to open it and I was going to say oh, I've had a bad dream and I didn't and then obviously I think I rang my mum or my sister and then I had to ring Michael's mum Family's officer and Padre were still there. They stayed for quite a while until my, I think, till the family arrived. We know so far this is actually the 27th of January, the day before. Julie gets the visit on the 28th. We've got Holly, less than eight weeks old, upstairs asleep. And Michael, Julie's husband, is in Sierra Leone. So just to give you some sort of context, some sort of understanding, Sierra Leone is not a place that we know much about in the UK. And where was Britain in all our conflicts around the beginning of the millennium? Well, you have to look it up, really. Um, A classic sort of Ministry of Defence line, I think, is that the United Kingdom began a sort of military invention, I think, around May 2000 in Sierra Leone, and there had been civil war. So, as plucky Brits 
see themselves as the keepers of peace throughout the world. I think, I think the official line is that we were in there to keep the peace. It's not something that I recall hearing about, seeing about. Obviously, if you're in, you know, barracks and that, you'll be well aware of all of the locations that British troops go to. But I think we think of that era of the 90s and then obviously after 9-11 we think really don't we of Afghanistan and Iraq Julie mentioned those those places Sierra Leone is in West Africa close to the equator similar in size to Scotland Freetown is the capital it's on the coast they are generally I think on the same time zone as certainly Greenwich Mean Time. I looked it up and I think that in the 60s they stopped changing their clocks. So one thing that I was curious to know as Julie talked about the phones being cut off was if there was any sort of time lag, if we were on a completely, you know, four or five hours behind. But my understanding is that we were pretty much on a, on a level playing field there. So by the time Julie gets the knock on the door in the morning of the 28th, this news, and I always hate to call it news when it's someone's life, but it already has some energy in Sierra Leone, and that's to say that the Ministry of Defence and the forces on the ground there are what 12 hours ahead of of your knowledge perhaps i don't know do we were you told a time on that morning when it um, happened not on that morning no i didn't find out till oh, weeks um i think he was killed about well a time frame between 21.30, I think it was about 21.30, because from where the accident was back to where the camp was, I think there was like a two and a half hour drive. So Julie said two things there that are immediately interesting. The second point is that she gave you the first description of what happened, labelling it an accident which is obviously what she was told. And the first I find astonishing, and that is that it took some time before a very basic detail, as in the time of death, became common knowledge. And if you look at that, you would ask yourself why anyone would be so protective of such a simple detail. And that's something that we'll probably look at in time. So on that morning of the 28th of January, what details could they give you? He'd been involved in a road traffic accident. The Wimmick had, first of all, they said it skidded on an oil slick. They said Michael was driving. 
and there was four in the vehicle and another guy was died as well, James. And that's all they said. You, you referred to a Wimmick. What, what is a Wimmick. that? A Wimmick is a Land Rover, an army Land Rover with the roof ripped off and you have the, right. the wall bars still. And you have a big machine gun at the front of the Wimmick and you have a great big machine gun at the back. So really, there okay. should only be three in the vehicle, but there was four. Already you're throwing up points that I need to make a note of. The first thing I would say is when I described Britain's involvement in Sierra Leone and the Civil War, is that how you understood it? Yeah, they were peacekeeping. To the Civil War, they went over there peacekeeping. And of course, when you say there should be only three people in, in that vehicle, that's what, Ministry of Defence guidelines, is it? Yeah, I mean, I didn't find out till weeks, maybe months later. Just in the first instance, they said they'd skidded on an oil slick. Michael was driving. And then later that evening, I was trying to ring Sierra Leone. I was, I was ringing everybody like a crazy woman, trying to find out that what went wrong. And I gave them a list of questions. Just don't come back to my house until I have all the answers, like... Who was driving? How far away from the camp they were? Were they in convoy? Because you have to be in convoy and you're not allowed to leave that convoy. And yeah. and so far in the narrative, we have obviously only mentioned one vehicle, but we have not mentioned like a standard phrase, which is, oh, the vehicle behind him pulled over and did everything they could to save him. Yeah, the lead vehicle with the lieutenant and people in, drove off, sped off, because there was a party back at the ship. It was like an end of leave and do, because they were flying home two days later. And they'd been in the jungle for, I don't know, maybe 10 days, taking weapons back off rebels and stuff, and they obviously wanted to get back to the ship, and they left them. So there was there was a convoy? Yeah, there was a convoy, but not when the accident happened. How many vehicles in that convoy? I say three, but it could be two. I know the lead vehicle drove off and left them. How do you know there? that? Because I found out. I went into camp when they flew back with a dictation machine in my pocket and recorded them. Wow. And obviously, you can see, you know, we're 20 minutes into this conversation and... There are cans of worms being opened here. That detail that you just gave, is that ever mentioned in any reports, uh, post-mortem, um, litigation, or is that between you, your dictaphone, and whoever is listening now? I gave it to Miss Lister. The day after Michael was killed, I went and got a solicitor because I knew something was wrong and I didn't have all the answers. And I knew they, were, they weren't telling us the truth. I just knew. So I went and got a solicitor because what else was I supposed to do? Maybe because I'm ex-army and I know, you know, I know, I know people lie. I know the MOD is a massive organisation and they cover up. And I just thought, no, I'm not, I'm not settling for he was just killed in a road traffic accident, or something not right, and I knew. I didn't know the facts, but I knew 
that something wasn't right. But so I, by the evening of oh, the 28th of January, you knew that he was driving and you knew that he wasn't driving, correct? Yeah, I don't know whether I found out on that night that he wasn't driving. It was he was driving, no, he wasn't. The other guy was driving. Then they didn't slide a skid on an oil slick. Just loads of things that they kept coming back with, and they just never they never gave us a hundred percent. Like the questions I gave them, they never really came back and told us what I wanted to hear. It was just like little snippets. Well, let's just sort of rephrase that, what you wanted to hear. Uh, th there's nothing that you really want to hear in this moment except clarity and honesty and sincerity. And already this appears to be, well, up for grabs. And it is possible that, those people giving you information in the morning had only been briefed certain information and it is possible and understandable that as time goes on the facts can change because of a lack of understanding of what actually happened but if you continue listening to the story i think there's enough hint already that, as we used to say, there was a little bit of being economical with the, the truth. Do you have any idea of the conditions that they would have been driving in? I've not been to Sierra Leone. I, I have spent some time in Africa. You said it was 9.30 at night. My mind would say that it was probably... If it wasn't a main road, probably something, you know, more like a, a track. I would imagine that lighting was poor. I would imagine that it's not a good time to drive. But I would also ask myself why there was an oil slick there at half past nine at night. It's not something you hear very often, is it? It was a main road. It was called Montana Highway, which is a long stretch of road. I know because I, I did go over to Sierra Leone several years later. And I went to the exact spot. So it has no white lines, no cat's eyes, no street lights. It had a little makeshift straw house on the side of the road where people live. No electricity. It's just a long stretch of road. Like a like a dual carriageway. Black tarmacked road. They have red dust everywhere. So they wore ski goggles when they were driving because the Wimmick didn't have a windscreen in. So they wore ski goggles and scarves, scarves around the face to protect them from the red dust because everywhere is red dust. It's like, you know, like red soil. Yeah. Well, it is, it is, of course, possible that it could have been an oil slick, but the little voice in my head says that wasn't the lead vehicle. <laughs> so no. the lead vehicle must have done very well to avoid the, the oil slick. Well, it wasn't an oil slick till I found out later, but like you talk a month later was a broken exactly. down lorry on the side of the road. They seen it. The driver said he kind of saw he saw it and he pulled out a little bit to have like you know to. But when he went to turn back in, he lost control, and the Wimmick flipped. You contact a solicitor the the day after, 
because you're military now and also instinct as a human being based on the caginess of of how you've been informed of all of this but what was your well this is a hard question but beyond thinking there's there's something not right about this did you have a suspicion an instinct as to let's put it bluntly where a cover-up might have been and what it might have been concealing think because i knew michael he'd been in the army 12 years he was in charge the commander in charge corporal in charge he wasn't stupid he wouldn't have put him or himself at risk there was something not right something was telling me that there was something not right and i was right but I went with my good feeling and I thought, what would he do if it was the other way around and it was me? Would he fight and find it? Yes, he would. So that's what I did. I wonder what people listening uh, would have as their gut feeling as to what had happened. We, as I said, know very little about Sierra Leone. Julie's described the actual road, I tried to paint the pictures of what I perceived in my head without wishing to have watched too many movies. You said that they'd gone to collect weapons from rebels. Surely that's quite a dangerous task. I don't know what that entails, but... Whereas Commander, when I spoke to him later on, had said, like, they went out by company, so A company, B company, C company. So they went out for six weeks at a time. And Michael's company was the last ones to go out. And they went into the jungle the furthest to for the peacekeeping and obviously to remove weapons from whoever. Obviously, this is after the Civil War. And that's what I was told. Perfectly plausible, I think. I don't want to say anything too daft, but sometimes you blurt stuff out, don't you, when somebody tells you a story? And my reaction was one word, and that was ambush. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Is that an unreasonable thing to, to imagine, to react like that? It wasn't, or... You don't think that that's going to happen over there. If they'd had radios in the vehicle, if they'd had, they didn't have mobile phones, they hadn't had the correct training on the vehicle. So I found out later. The lead vehicle drove off and left them. There wasn't a vehicle tailing them in the convoy. There wasn't a no, third vehicle behind no. them. No. no. The other guy, James, he was alive for several hours. Several hours after. But because no help came, and they were in the middle of nowhere... He died. He was pronounced dead at Unamsal Hospital. I think it was about after midnight. How did help come? Michael was thrown out into the road. The driver had a broken leg and something else, and I think he was knocked out when he came round. He said he did try to revive Michael, but I think he said there was a he was there was a breath, but nothing else. And it was locals pulled up in a car and put Michael in the back. I think there was about seven in the in the car, civilians from, from Sierra Leone. 
And they took him to a police station because they didn't know what to do. James went in another car. He was still talking. He was still alive. And he had internal injuries because he was crushed under the Wimmick. And they took him to this army house, thinking that's where he was from. And these two guys obviously took him to hospital, but he was pronounced dead when he got there. Michael was left out on the back of the police station. I went to the police station February 2005. I went over on my own. I had people meeting us there um, from the army because there was a little army camp and I stayed there and it was this officer called Helen, I think you called her. She took us to the place as well. I wanted to go Montana Highway where the accident happened. Um, the police station, places that I didn't go to the hospital. And that's really just a sort of, you've got to see for yourself kind of trip, really, isn't it? Yeah, I'd wanted to go since, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't let me, they wouldn't allow me to go. Um, I couldn't take Holocaust back then. I think children had to be over a certain age, maybe 10, <laughs> 11, 12, before they could Why travel to Why wouldn't they allow you to go? Can, um, I assume there's no civilian flights to... There is, yeah. Mm -hmm. There are, okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the Ministry of Defence said you cannot go to... They just kept making excuses, oh, it's not right, and and then it was a voting season or something over there, and so I went... How long did our presence remain in Sierra Leone? Do you know? After Michael's regiment... I don't think anybody else went. I'm not 100% sure it might have been some other battalion. There was a small army camp that was there for several years. I think it was just kind of like peacekeeping in Freetown itself. Just a small little army camp. You were describing the police station. Um... Yeah. It's just a small little, little shack police station. And out the back there was like a concrete patio like derelict wasteland and that's where they laid michael's body that's where he was on the floor out the back until i don't know the army or somebody picked him up and took him to the hospital that must be tough standing i think it was just i kind of knew because i'd been told and i'd read reports um but I needed to go for myself, so I, that's where I went. I didn't visit the hospital, Unamsel Hospital. I'll always remember that name. I didn't go there. I don't know how far away it was from where I was. I don't know. Now, let's just fast forward. And obviously, that awful word, closure, um which is something that, that never really exists. But just to give people a sense of the amount of time that we've got to cover in this story, fast forward to the year when, let's just say, all the paperwork was finally concluded with the Ministry of Defence, including litigation, etc etc when 
the book is closed, if you like, on this, although always open for you. What year would that be? And just for people listening, remember, this begins 27th of January 2002. So when would that be? Um, it was about eight and a half years. Eight and a half. Nine, eight and a half. About, yeah, about eight and a half, yeah. It's fair to say you didn't get answers immediately, even over basic information. I'm pretty confident that as time begins to unravel with a conclusion eight and a half years later, that you certainly would have had conversations with the surviving members of the vehicle. Not until it was about April 2002. They weren't allowed to go to the funeral. They were told that I didn't want them there. Wow. Um, and I went back down to Blackpool to the married quarter to finish off packing and hand it back over. And um, one of the clerks who worked with Michael came and told me that um, the driver, Adam, was coming back to camp from sick leave. He hadn't been back since. And she said, I'm picking him up from the train station. Do you want me to bring him to your house before the military police interview him? So that's what she did. He was distraught. It was horrible. It was, it was horrible. He was a mess. They tried to blame him. He said he was speeding. They tried to put all the blame on him. And he just kept saying, I tried, I tried, I tried to save him. He was on, obviously on about Michael. I tried, I did my best. And he was crying, I was crying. And he just said, I wasn't allowed to the funeral. They told me that you didn't want us there. And when had the funeral been? The funeral was February the 11th, 2002. So, of course, the key question here is, did his version of events differ from the version of events that you had at this point? No choice but to accept as a truth. They didn't tell us straight away that Michael wasn't driving, it was Michael was driving, then Adam was driving, then Michael kept flicking back and forth and forwards. But when I spoke to him, I knew he was telling me the truth. And that truth was? He said there was a broken down lorry. Michael gave him the nod to make sure he saw it. He went, yes, mate, I've seen it. He said he just kind of turned out. And when he went to turn back... The vehicle just lost control. He did say that about an hour before the accident, they pulled over because they heard banging from underneath the vehicle and they both got out and him and Michael had a look under and couldn't see anything, so got back in the vehicle and drove again. But I rang SIB. I said I wanted to see the vehicle. Was there any faults with it? The... They said there wasn't. SIB is? Special Intelligence Branch. 
And did you say earlier that they weren't trained to drive that vehicle? Yeah, they have a... There's a driver's permit. I've got Michael's obviously upstairs in the loft still. It's a little green card. And they have training before they go on any overseas tour. So I think they were meant to have five days training in the Wimmick and they only had a day and a half because the guy who was training them couldn't do the rest of the training and it was signed off. So it was an accident. Um, and it seems a duty of care issue here. Why do you feel that they were so... inconsistent with the truths that they presented to you? Because they can cover up. The MOD. There's not many people who've took the MOD for negligence and they've accepted negligence and won. Just outline what, what they are covering up. I mean, you mentioned negligence, so we're referring to the fact that the vehicle was... It was lack, lack of equipment, lack of training, no mobile phones, no radios. Lead vehicle brought, drove off and left them. Four in the vehicle instead of three. Um, couldn't wear the seat belts when the seat seat was raised in the front because they were holding the machine gun. But obviously there was a warning on the dashboard, but that was covered by a dust cover. So that was never seen. It's fascinating because, of course... Throughout the world and in the UK, we are familiar with court cases that have their moment many years after the events that provoked the litigation. Hillsborough, the 1989 football disaster, of course, is a, a classic example. It takes time to get to court. It takes time to compile information, and it certainly takes time to acquire documentation from secret organizations and then they're often redacted which means that there are huge lines through the the paperwork there is something that that bugs me and i wonder if anyone else is thinking it and i'll speak coldly here even though i can eyeball julie it's an accident. It's an accident. Accidents happen. But from the outset, there seemed to be a determination to withhold information and conceal information. And what that tells me, and this is the thing that bugs me, is that, you know, at the moment of impact at which Michael's superiors were not present, they can't know all the circumstances themselves, as Julie didn't. But somebody, at some point, has had a light bulb moment and gone, hang on a minute, we need to get our own house in order here. There can be no other explanation for withholding information, concealing information, and quite often, you know, it's not a redacted document 
that is where the clues are, but it's comments like Julie saying she found out afterwards that Adam was told he wasn't wanted at the funeral when he desperately wanted to be there. So that's that's a nonsense, really. That's mischief-making. And again, it comes back to that thing. They're going to put barriers between the truth and Julie and make it very, very difficult. It's an accident. Accidents happen. But somebody very early on has decided we need to get our house in order, brackets, we need to get our story straight. Do you think that's fair? The morning Michael died, they told us the family's officer asked permission if he could speak to the press, to have like a press release, if he could speak to them and say something on my behalf. And I said yes, because I didn't. I don't think I was with it, you know what I mean? And I don't think, like, I was listening to everything he was saying. But that's what that's what they do. And so he obviously got in touch with them and said, road traffic accident, two deaths, end of. What I think will be quite distressing for people is that you would like to subscribe to the theory that in these moments the Ministry of Defence, Army, look after their own. But of course, there are internal battles and, you know, here's a woman, Julie, that's not equipped to deal with the press and also can't tell them anything because it's hearsay at this point. So the Ministry of Defence, etc., take control of the situation and control is is the key word there and I, I think there's a fine line when things go wrong there's a fine line between looking after our own and taking control of the situation for their own exploitation stroke advantage and that looks like that's what's happened so the funeral who did attend it was a big massive military funeral the two guys who were survived didn't. And was that a separate funeral for Michael and James or together or? James had a separate funeral. So presumably, and we'll, we can talk about this in future episodes, presumably you've had dialogue with James's family over the years and, quote, compared notes, quote, no. Wow. I only met I only met James's dad at the inquest, which was about eighteen months later. Michael's parents had asked if she could, they could send a card, a condolence card, to James's family, and they were advised not to. Wouldn't give them the address. Wouldn't let them send a card. Again, I come back to my point. Are we looking after our own or are we controlling the situation? You would hope, wouldn't you, that families would be encouraged to share grief. Yeah. But, of course, sharing grief would be sharing knowledge. You mentioned earlier Michael's parents and you mentioned 
the call, I think, to his mum. Can you remember that on the morning? You are breaking the news to Michael's mum, not the forces. I rang my mum. I rang his mum. I just said... To me, it's Julie, and she was like, yeah, yeah, you're everything okay? And I just said, it's Michael. What's the matter? What's the matter? I just said, he's... He's been killed. And she was like, what, what? How, how? And, and obviously she was devastated. Michael's dad was working away. He'd just gone back to the oil rigs. So she kept saying, I'll have to get in touch with Cliff, Clifford. I'll have to get in touch with him. And he's away. He's just gone away on the rigs. And that was that. Around my mum. And I think within like two hours, my mum, my stepdad and my sister were at my house. They drove straight down from the northeast. I can look back now, right, and I can think, Jesus. But, you know, when you're doing things and you're like autopilot, aren't you? Like something happens and you're in shock. And you just like focus forward and I don't know, that's what it was like. Like it was me, I was in my body, but I was up here looking down, like and doing things. I think that's how I how I did it, how I managed. I don't know how I did it. As we head towards the end of this first episode you can draw your own conclusions it is clear that there is information and disinformation it is clear that it was tough for julie to find a truth hence a truth of lies there are two particular threads that we have discussed that we will revisit when we come back the funeral what happens when a soldier falls abroad many of us will recall the pictures of processions through royal wooden bassett in in wiltshire it was a common item on the news for many many years but what really happens what do the family know what are the logistics of it and trust me there's a story here and then of course let's not forget the two most important people here and that is julie and holly eight weeks old and yes, Michael had just returned to Sierra Leone, having been in the UK, to spend time with Holly for the first, only, and last time. Next time on Truth of Lies. He looked over the cot. He looked all right in and Holly. And he said bye. And then he walked away to the bedroom door. And then he turned round... 
he looked back at her in the cot and was it going to be his last look? To find out more, please visit secretsofaghostwriter.com. Truth of Lies is a horny media and publishing production.